self-help, self-improvement, remodeling project, all are words that are used to describe the way we seek to improve our lives. Daily we are bombarded with advertisement. We wrestle with both internal and external struggles, a desire to better ourselves, our lives, and our society. Frankly, many of us want to be better. That word itself is a constant thought in our mind. You want to be a better father, a better mother, a a better worker, a better student, a better person. You want to give up a habit or learn a new one. Self-improvement. You and I know and wrestle with daily in our lives a desire to be different. To be better versions of ourselves than we were yesterday. This constant struggle to be better causes many of us to grow discouraged. We fight with trying to lose weight and grow discouraged when we can't. Uh, We want to learn a new instrument or challenge ourselves to learn a new hobby. Yet when we fail, we grow discouraged. We want to improve our overall work ethic. We want to be better workers, uh, check in on time and check out on time. We want to give our all, not only in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, but of course, in our homes. We want to be better at teaching our children how to follow Jesus or how to be good students. We want to be better. All around you, you watch ads on TV or read ads in newspapers or on billboards that target this particular desire in the human experience, which is wanting to be better. We often believe when we take this mentality that we've been exposed to into the religious realm or arena we find ourselves today and conclude that God must want me to be better. That God desires me to be a better version of myself. He wants to clean me up a bit, whip me into shape. That ultimately what God is after through the gospel of Jesus Christ is to assist us with our own self-improvement projects. While this may be the goal of other world religions, the Bible paints an entirely different picture about what God is really after when he works in the lives of humanity. Christianity presents an entirely different goal when God interacts with the lives of people. The Bible demonstrates that God's program is not so much an improvement project, but a deconstruction project. That God isn't about improving this world, making it a better place. But that God is an act about destroying this world and making it a new place. You see, God isn't in the remodeling business. He is in the destruction business. In the creation business. God is about destroying that he might create new. God is not 
after a better version of you or humanity, but rather a new version of you. A topic that we will see come up over and over again through the Gospel of John is this fundamental truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to usher in a new era of redemptive history. That Jesus Christ didn't come to sort of reconstruct what God was doing, but, but rather to demonstrate that all that God had been doing up until his coming was pointing to this new kingdom that was coming, a new heaven and a new earth. And if there is to be a new heaven and a new earth, Logically, there must be new people that inhabit this new heaven and new earth. This is the topic we will take up this morning. Who will inherit this new heaven and new earth? Will it be better versions or or cleaned up versions, whitewashed versions of the old? Or will they be new and different? This is the question we want to think about this morning. How can I enter the kingdom of God? What is the prerequisite for the kingdom of God? How how do you enter the kingdom of God? How is it? What credentials do you need? What, What is it that you, if you were to show up at the door of the kingdom of heaven, what is it that you need to get through that door? Is it good works? Is it attending church? Is it being a good citizen? Is it being a better version of yourself, an improved version? As we'll see this morning, what you need to do to enter through the kingdom of heaven is absolutely nothing. That it requires God to first do something. That it requires God to act. That the new birth is an act of God from beginning to end. Well, before we turn there, let's kind of catch up where we've been. Last week, we considered in chapter 2 of John's gospel, the first of several signs that John is using to forward his main point in this first section of his gospel. The gospel of John can easily be divided into two parts. Chapters 1 through 12 and 13 to 21. John's gospel begins and ends with a begins with the prologue and ends with a postlude, a sort of conclusion. The meat of the gospel is summarized in two ways that Jesus Christ came into the world to reveal the Father's glory, so chapters 1 through through 12, and to save the world from sin. Chapters 13 through 21. John uses in this first section a number of signs, acts that Jesus did that proves that he came to reveal the Father's glory. That Jesus Christ came into the world not only to save sinners, but to glorify the Father. And so you'll see Jesus say again and again, I have come to do my Father's will. I have come to do and to reveal his glory. Chapter 3 this morning falls within a larger section between chapters 2 to chapter 4 where the main point is forwarded that Jesus Christ came to reveal truth and the Father's glory. 
That, that they're synonymous terms. That to reveal the Father's glory is to reveal truth about the Father and about the Father's plan. Well, we see that in John chapter 1 and verse 14. That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. Words communicate grace and truth. The Word, Jesus Christ, came to reveal the glory of the Father in both grace that is, his unmerited favor of salvation and the truth of his redemptive plan in Christ. With that in your mind, this is where we'll begin in John chapter 3. So I invite you to turn there. It's found on page 887 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. This is a rather lengthy chapter, but yet we'll hopefully do it justice in a, in a sort of compact, concise, and brief way. To begin, I'm going to read 1 through 15 and read the rest as I move through this section. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, what we speak, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, you, would, you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except him who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Well, what's the point of chapter 3? It could be summarized in this short way. Only those who have been born again and who have repented and believed that Jesus is the Christ can enter the kingdom of God. Only those who've been born again and therefore repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ, can enter the kingdom of God. So this morning, really the purpose of John chapter 3 is to exhort us, to, to compellingly call us everywhere and everyone to put their faith in the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of their sins. 
And so three questions, or the one question we asked this morning is, how can I enter the kingdom of God? How can you enter the kingdom of God? We'll see three points here. First, by being born again. Secondly, by trusting in Jesus for eternal life. And thirdly, by submitting to the supremacy of Christ. Now to be clear, my outline might feel like steps. Might like say, I've got to do this and then this and then that. That would be a misunderstanding. The point is one of progression. When one is born again, they believe and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is the evidence of new birth, the evidence of new life, is belief, trusting in, and submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. One cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, born again, if they do not believe in the one and only Son, Jesus Christ, and submit to his supremacy. So these are the three points we want to think about this morning. First, in verses 1 through 15, that only those who are born again can enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus made that emphatically clear, didn't he? I tried to read it real slow for you, for those that are a little slower to, to read here, right? He says again and again, verse, in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 3, and then again in chapter 3, verse 5, that you cannot see, you cannot enter the kingdom without being born again. Well, before we get into that truth, let's just get a sense of what's going on here. We're told that uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Look there at verse 1. We are told that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Of course, the Pharisees were a religious sect within, within Judaism, a very strict sect. They were uh, very intentional. They, they followed the, the law to the letter. Uh, they numbered all the laws. There's over 600 or so laws in the Old Testament. And they uh, would memorize these laws. And they were so serious about these laws that they created laws to make sure they didn't break the laws. That's how serious they were. These Pharisees were serious Bible people. They knew their Bibles. They were akin to Bible believers here in America. They knew their Bible. And they held to their Bible. They, they weren't like the liberal uh, Sadducees, who, who kind of took God's word and twisted it to their own benefit. No, they were literalists. They believed the, the literal word. They were strict. We are told that Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees. But not only that, he wasn't just a part of the group. Notice, he was, he was a ruler of the Jews. He was one who led the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council there in Jerusalem. These were the, the 70 men. If you will, if you were to take the Supreme Court of the United States and the U.S. Senate and combine it together, this is what the Sanhedrin would have been. The ruling council. They would have made the laws and they would have judged the laws. They were very powerful people. We were told that Nicodemus is one of these powerful rulers and he comes to him at night. Now, some have made much about what John is after, perhaps by this phrase, by night. Later in the gospel, he will use night as a metaphor for evil and sin. This is perhaps his point, maybe not. Maybe it was just under the cover of darkness. It was not unheard of for rabbis to teach at night. And a number of things that Jesus even says about him later. He calls him the teacher of Israel. There in verse 10. 
In other words, Nicodemus wasn't just a Pharisee, a strict literalist when it came to the Old Testament law. Jesus not only recognizes that he was a devout leader, that he was a, a powerful man, but, but that he was the, capital T-H-E, teacher of Israel. In other words, he was a respected teacher in the life of the nation of Israel. This was an important guy. This is an important dude. This isn't just nobody. This isn't just some you know, Jewish guy who kind of knows his Bible a little bit and, and he's intrigued. No, this is an expert in all matters of life and doctrine. And this was his problem. You see, for Nicodemus, what he thought he needed was to be an ethnic Jew and obey God, and that was sufficient to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus radically transforms Nicodemus' mind and worldview. He explodes everything that Nicodemus knew and loved and desired in life, namely that he could make and earn his way into God's presence by obedience and by birth. Nicodemus had the right pedigree. He had the right family. He had the right job. He had the right everything going for him. He was, in the eyes of the Jews, the perfect Jew. And Jesus says to him, you can't get in on the kingdom of God. Jesus comes to Nicodemus and says, you, sir, have it all going on, but you miss one thing. You've not been born again. You've not been born again. And so here in, the, in this passage, we see Jesus confronting this religious leader, this wise man, this powerful leader. Jesus speaks truth into him. He's not afraid of him. He doesn't cower to him, but rather tells him exactly what he needs to know. And he gives him this solemn truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, Verily, verily, I say to you, for y'all King James folks, right? Um, truly, truly. He said, in other words, he's saying, listen, listen, right? Pay attention, pay attention. I got something important to say to you, sir. There in verse 3, look at it again. Unless one is born again, he cannot, know not, never see the kingdom of God. He can't even get, he can't even see it. He doesn't even know where it's at. He's lost. He's blind. This leader of the people of Israel, the one who knew his Bible better than any other Israelite, can't even see the kingdom of God. And it's right before his eyes. It's a drastic picture, isn't it? Of one who has it all, but yet has nothing. The one who thinks that they're going to heaven and dwell with God forever, yet have nothing at all. Can't even fumble his way into it. Can't even feel his way. He's blind. But truly, it was the blind leading the blind, Jesus says, about these religious leaders. They knew their Bible so much that they did not even know the God of their Bible. This is truly a sad state, isn't it? To know so much of your Bible, but yet not know the very God for which the Bible you know reveals? This is the sad state of so many 
in the church today. Oh, they can quote you chapter and verse. They'll quote you, oh, John 3.16 here in a moment. But it's not transforming. They know the God of the Bible, but they don't know him in an intimate, personal way. Jesus reveals to him that one must be born again, at which Nicodemus is naturally very confused. (laughs) If you look there in verse 4, Nicodemus is like, all right, Jesus, I I mean, I know you're a smart guy, but help me out here. I I don't quite understand what you mean. Nicodemus ultimately says, okay, born, all right, I know know about birth. I'm not dumb, all right? So, So are you saying, Jesus, that I've got to go through and be born like physically again? Yeah, I got to like receive some sort of new, like, what are you describing? Like, maybe like reincarnation? Am I being reincarnated here? Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You're missing the point, Nicodemus. I'm not, you're thinking about flesh. You're thinking about earthly things. I'm saying spiritual. I'm talking about spiritual birth here, Nicodemus. This is why Jesus responds in verse 5 by saying, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now the word water and spirit there is not a reference to physical and then spiritual birth. No, rather in John's gospel, when he combines two words together like water and spirit, he's referring to the one and the same thing. It's one thing. So it's not physical and then spiritual, but it's all spiritual, all right? Perhaps he's sending it baptism here, but not at all, probably. He's referring here to new birth, a, a miraculous work that we'll see that is wrought by the Holy Spirit. And the point that Jesus is making in verses 3 through 5 is that rebirth or new birth or the theological word that you want to familiarize yourself with is regeneration is necessary for entrance into and participation in the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching here that one cannot, no not, never enter into God's eternal kingdom apart from regeneration. That it is the prerequisite, the the essential credential that you need. That you're not going to turn up into heaven and plead, well, God, you know, I did these things and I did that. And, you know, I mean, God, he's so loving, isn't he? I mean, John 3, 16, God loves. Jesus makes emphatically clear that unless you have been born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus goes on to clarify for Nicodemus, who is very confused about life right now. Look there in verse 6. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, what he's saying is that there are now, through the ushering in of this new kingdom, two people groups. Listen to me. We could, if we were to take all of humanity, Jesus says, and put them into two categories. Two groups. We, we have a ledger, and we, on one side we have one, and we, on the other side we have the other. It's not all Jews and then all Gentiles. Jesus says it's all regenerate and all unregenerate. All those who have been born again, Jesus says, and all those who have not been born again. Those are the two categories. 
Even here this morning, gathered with us, we have those two groups. Though we are diverse in our ethnic and sociological backgrounds, we are two groups, the regenerate and the unregenerate, the sinner and the saint. This is what Jesus' point is. Furthermore, Jesus makes clear in verses 6 through 7 that only the Spirit can renew human hearts. That the new birth is not something that you can do. Look with me again at chapter 1 in John's prologue. Verse 12. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, Jesus gave the right to become children of God. Now listen. Who were born... Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, you can't will yourself into heaven. You can't be born into heaven, that is, physically born. In other words, just because your mommy and daddy are Christians doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because your grandparents are going to heaven doesn't mean you are. And just because you're a human being, born of the, just because you're human, you know, so you know, pop, pop culture says that, you know, we're all children of God. No, Jesus says that you're only a child of God if you have been born again, that the spirit of God has quickened your heart. Of course, this is what we read earlier in the Baptist faith and message. If you have your uh, bulletin, you might want to look there. If not, I. That's fine, you can just listen to me. And the Baptist faith and message makes clear that regeneration is a work of God by the Spirit. It is a work of God's grace, whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change wrought by whom? The Holy Spirit, through conviction of sin, to which the sinner responds in repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the work of the Spirit, Jesus says here in verses 6 and 7. He says, do not marvel, verse 7, that I say to you must be born again. He says, don't be surprised. This is the work of the Spirit. And then he goes on to give us a, a sort of earthly analogy, doesn't he? An illustration that even works today. Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who, believe, who is born of the Spirit. Many of you, I'm sure, if you've been on a walk, you've seen a tree fell over in the, in the forest or fell over on the road. You know something happened to that tree. You might have not been there to witness it, but you probably logically conclude that maybe a big storm came through and blew that tree over. You weren't there for the storm, but it happened. It went. You don't know where that wind came from or when it happened or how it happened. You think about the weather. A meteorologist, even today, can't get the weather right. They've been studying it for hundreds of years. They still can't get it right. They don't know where the wind comes from. They don't know when it'll come. And Jesus says, so it is with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God blows on the hearts of dead men according to God's sovereign will. We don't know how. We don't know when, but He does. The Spirit's Action or operation is like that of the wind. It is uncontrollable and incomprehensible. God acts according to his sovereign will and he brings life where there is death. 
This is what we heard in Ezekiel chapter 36, isn't it? I will sprinkle clean water on you. There's that water, water in the spirit. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I, God says, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. It is God's work from beginning to end. Not of the will of man, not of the will of the flesh, but the will of God. This is the Spirit's work to bring life where there is death. J.C. Ryle helpfully writes, The change which our Lord here declares needful to salvation is evidently no slight or superficial one. It is not merely reformation or amendment or moral change or outward alteration. It is a thorough change of heart, will, and character. It is a resurrection. It is a new creation. It is a passing from death to life. The act of regeneration is an act in which we are changed and transformed instantaneously. Where we get new desires and new wills. Desires and wills that we never had before. New hungers and longings which we never had before. We, we did not want the kingdom of God until the Spirit of God breathed life onto us. Do you know the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36 goes on to get a vivid illustration of what this new birth would look like and how it would happen. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophet Ezekiel sees a picture of a valley of dry bones. Dead people can't put themselves back together again. They're dry. He says they're very dry. In other words, very dead, right? There, there was no inkling in which these bones could in any form come back to life. But when Isaiah, or when Ezekiel rather, spoke to them, the Spirit of God assembled an army that had life. In other words, the new birth would happen as the as the peop, would happen as God used a messenger to declare the word of God, which the Spirit of God would use to create the people of God. Romans chapter 10 says it this way, faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Do you know the means God uses to bring about the regenerating work is the preaching of God's word? And I don't mean formal preaching like you're hearing now, but through evangelistic appeals. Sharing the gospel with friends and family. When you open God's word and you declare it to people, dead people, the spirit of God uses it to bring life where there is death. Friends, this is why as Christians, we give ourselves to the regular means of God's grace in the preaching of God's word Sunday after Sunday. I have no faith. I have doubt. I have anxiety. I'm struggling to believe. Well, are you attending to the regular means of God's grace in the preaching of his word? This is the means that God uses to bring life where there is death. Well, this, of course, is what Jesus points out to Nicodemus in verses 9 through 15. Namely, Nicodemus 
the great teacher of Israel and his ignorance of the Old Testament. Passages like Ezekiel 36. In other words, Jesus says, Nicodemus, come on, you know your Bible. Have you not read Ezekiel chapter 30? Have you not thought about these things and many others? Like Psalm 51 where David says, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. You see, God had left breadcrumbs all throughout the Old Testament pointing to the reality of this new person that God would create through Jesus Christ. And friends, the point is, as we'll see in a moment, that this new life results in new faith and new belief and new living. Life is gained only by believing and looking to Jesus, as we'll see in chapter 3, 16 through 21. Friend, the point is clear. You cannot earn your way into heaven. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You can't do it. You can't earn it. You're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. So why don't you give that up? Stop trying to improve your life and rather give your life to Jesus and he will make it new. Regeneration is by God's sovereign grace alone. You can't will it. Parent, listen to Jesus' words. You cannot will it. Friend, listen. You cannot will it upon your friend or neighbor. The Spirit blows as the Spirit blows. Therefore, pray to the Spirit to blow. Pray, Holy Spirit, bring life into their dead hearts. You can plead with them until you're you're blue in, in your face, or maybe red in your face as you're yelling, I don't know. But at the end of the day, you will never change someone's heart. Only God can. That doesn't mean we stop preaching and sharing the gospel, but that means that we give ourselves to praying that the Spirit would bring life where there is death. R.C. Sproul helpfully writes and commented on this passage. If you have in your heart today any affection for Christ at all, it is because the Holy Spirit in his sweetness, in his power, in his mercy, and in his grace has been to the cemetery of your soul and has raised you to new life. Let that be a reminder lest you be tempted to pride. None of us deserve God's grace. None of us deserve this new birth. Count it a privilege this morning, brothers, sisters, that you have been born again. And finally, before we move on, once you've been born again, you cannot be dead again. This is not the point of this passage, but it is a point that the scriptures make. Once you have received new birth, you cannot die again. For Jesus cannot die again. How can you enter the kingdom of heaven? It is is reserved exclusively for a particular people. God is exclusive in who he lets near him. And it is only those who have been born again. Well, this leads us then to ask a follow-up question, doesn't it? If the spirit is invisible and the work of God is, is uncontrollable and inconceivable, how do we know we've been born again? 
How do we know that we have been regenerated and and new life is in us? Well, thankfully, John, in verse 16, comments on what Jesus just said to Nicodemus. And listen to what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works, listen, have been carried out by God. What is John's answer? By trusting in Jesus Christ for eternal life. What is the evidence of the Spirit's work in your life? It is the turning from sin and to Jesus. It is belief, isn't it? How many times did he say in that passage, whoever believes has eternal life? Whoever trusts in Jesus has eternal life. The evidence of new birth is belief. Now we see here first in verses 16 through 17 that God has given the gift of his own son. For God so loved the world... That four points back up to the, to the passage ahead of it, where Jesus says that, that he must be lifted up. That is, that he is the mechanism of God's salvation of his people. Just as Moses in Numbers 16 lifted up a, a serpent and the Israelites looked to it and were saved, so Jesus on the cross is where we look to salvation. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ and God's gift of his son. Here in verse 16 says that God so loved the world. Now, often we think that this is really talking about the quality of God's love or the quantity of God's love. In other words, it's kind of like we're reading a Hallmark card. You know, God so loved the world. He just so loves us. He just loves us so much. Which is not accurate. Which is why the Christian Standard Bible has translated this passage as God loved the world in this way. In other words, God's love is a demonstrated love. We've talked about this often. We could say we love one another, or we love our spouse, or we love our kids, but it's, it's not just through saying I love you, right? We know those are just words. We've got to back that up with action. We've got to do something. We've got to demonstrate our love. Well, God demonstrates his love by giving his own son, Jesus Christ. He says, I love the world, and I love the world because I gave my one and only son. Not my begotten son, that that sends to confuse the situation a bit, but the point that John is making is the exclusive son, the one and only son, the only way you can get to me is through this son who gives new life. But notice here that even in the midst of divine sovereignty in bringing new life, That there is human responsibility. So in this conversation, when you're saying, oh, God does it. God does it all from beginning to end. And that's true. 
we might be tempted to say, well, that means we just kind of sit back and let go and let God, just let things happen. Oh, God's going to save me. I'm going to get there. It'll be all right. No. There is a human element. There is human responsibility. You have a responsibility to believe on Jesus. To trust that Jesus alone is sufficient for salvation. This is what he says there in verse 16. Believe in him. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him. Whoever doesn't believe is condemned. Who does not believe. Right? Again and again you see that word belief. And I told you that was one of John's favorite words. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Belief isn't just a cognitive mental exercise where you believe, yeah, I believe Jesus is real, and I believe Jesus came, and I believe Jesus died on the cross, and I believe that he was raised again. I believe that Jesus ascended into heaven. Well, that is wonderful that you believe all of those historical facts. Well, I also believe that World War I is true, and it happened. I believe that the Holocaust happened. I believe that World War II happened. I believe that these historical, I believe that the sky is blue. But none of those beliefs save me from anything. And so we translated there a couple weeks ago the word trust, that what the, the biblical idea of belief is trusting in Jesus. Well, what are you trusting Jesus for but that to be saved from his father's wrath? You see that there in verses 19 through 21, that this is judgment. That the light is coming to the world, that is Jesus, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. John here is revealing to us the nature of humanity is to be drawn to darkness rather than the light. We are not like bugs attracted to those little bug zappers. We are repelled by the light, not attracted to the light. This is a point that Jesus is going to make later. And that I hope you understand clearly in John chapter 6 and 10. That only those that the Father gives to him, only those that have been born again, want to go to the light. It is the work of God's grace, but it requires us to repent and to believe in Christ, the one true and living God. Friend, do you trust in Jesus alone? The point that John is making here is that Jesus sacrifice on the cross is the only means to eternal life that your good deeds that your uh, honest effort is insufficient that your sin is so great god will not forgive it save the death of jesus christ is there work for you to be done or do you think this morning that god's love for you is contingent upon your obedience. How many saints have I spoken to who think because they dropped an offering the plate that somehow this week cosmic karma will come their way and they'll have a good week? That their checking accounts will be full and they'll be flowing over with great wealth. Bills will be paid. Friends, do you understand that that in and of itself is anti-gospel of Jesus Christ. That it is anti the way God acts. God does not say, do this and then I will love you. 
Now, for because John, first John four ten, because he first loved us, we love him. Brother, sister, God loves you today because he loves his own son, because he loves his own glory. God will love you for all of eternity because of Jesus and not because of you. Jesus, we see in this passage, is the only way that there is no other way to follow Jesus than by submitting to him and living for him for all of eternity. How can one enter the kingdom of God? Only by being born again and trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. Well, third and finally, very, very quickly here in verses 22 through 36. John here includes this story following his comments in order to further another point that is closely related. And he uses this debate among John the Baptist and his followers, essentially cliff notes. John, continue, John the Baptist, the baptizer, continues his ministry while Jesus begins his ministry and there's conflict. John the Baptist and his disciples, particularly his disciples, not him, but his disciples begin to say, more people are going to Jesus than to you. And John responds by saying, listen, guys, my ministry is temporary and my ministry had one goal. It was to point people to that man over there and not to me. And so John concludes by instructing his disciples that he, Jesus, must increase and that he, John, must decrease. In other words, what John, the apostle who's writing this, includes this story to point to the supremacy of Jesus Christ over and above everyone else. That John's ministry was meant to point to the supremacy of Jesus as the Christ. So look here in verses 31 through 36, where John the Apostle comments and gives us an interpretation of what these events in John the Baptist's life was meant to point. He who comes from above is above all. You hear it? He's referring to Jesus. He's saying Jesus is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth. And speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. See there's his argument again. He keeps pointing that Jesus. Who's from heaven is above all. He's supreme. Verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony. Sets a seal to this. That God is true. That is that, the, that if God is true, then the Son is true. That all that Jesus says is true and authoritative. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So, so John is furthering this argument, right? He is saying, look, Jesus above all. Reason one, he's from heaven. Reason two, he gives the spirit without measure. Reason three, because the father loves him and has given him all authority. All right. Finally, verse 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not, here's the word, obey the son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, those who have been born again, trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life and submit to his supremacy in their life. That is that true believers of Jesus Christ submit to Jesus as Lord of their life. A number of years ago, uh, many of you, if you've been a Christian for, for some time, will remember back in the 1970s and 80s, uh, there was a movement that swept among evangelicals uh, that I'm going to make Jesus Savior, but not Lord. And, and many helpful teachers spoke into that with, with authoritative biblical truth that it is, it is impossible. It is, in fact, contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ to submit to Jesus as Savior and not Lord. That, that when you believe on Jesus, a part of that is by saying that you take the crown off of your head, you step down from the throne, and you say, Jesus, you're now the King or Lord of my life. You're in charge. Is that true of you this morning if you are a follower of Jesus? In other words, look at what John does here in verse 36. He says that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son does not see life. You see the, you see the parallelism in the statement? Belief is paralleled with obedience. One of the results of the new birth is a new desire to do the will of God. And not your own will. Now that doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. That doesn't mean that you are going to be obedient every single day in every single way. But there is a desire in your soul to submit to the rule and reign of Christ in your life. It is to daily die to your desires and to take up and go God's new way in Jesus Christ. This is of course what Jesus said. If you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You have to die to your will and your desire, and you've got to follow me and obey me. And so regeneration begets obedience. That one of the fruits of the Spirit is obedience. This is why as a congregation, follow with me, we affirm regenerate church membership. Do you know as Baptists, the one claim to fame in church history is that truth? Regenerate church membership. That you can't be born into church membership like the Presbyterians believe, uh, like the Anglicans affirm. That, that just because your mommy and daddy are members of the church, that somehow you're, you're also included in the covenant community. No, Baptists have historically affirmed the opposite. That it's only regeneration that begets membership in the local church. This is why we make sure that you are living a life of repentance and faith and obedience to continue membership in this local church. You can say you believe Jesus all day long, but does your life affirm that truth? Or are you still living in immorality? Are you still living in unrepentant sin? How can you claim to follow Jesus and not obey him? This is why we graciously excommunicate those who claim the name of Christ and who live in unrepentant sin because of this truth. We believe that regeneration begets obedience to Jesus. 
Friends, this morning, if you understand yourself to be a Christian, do you see the fruit of obedience in your heart, in your life? Pray that it might grow. Fight the temptation to disobey Christ. Satan would love nothing than for you to live in rebellion against him. Do you believe upon Jesus? Do you describe yourself as a follower of Christ? Do these marks mark your life? Namely, belief and obedience. Only those we see in this passage who repent and believe, who've been born again, can enter the kingdom of God. For there is great hope in this passage. You can't mess it up. I can't mess this up. That's good. That's assuring. That's comforting to know that this is the work of God. But it is also humbling because there is absolutely not a single thing I can do, not a single thing you can do to earn God's love, to earn your way. No, no, no tears, no pleading, no begging. Only the new birth. Brothers and sisters, pray that you might be born again. Pray the Spirit might give life where there is death. Pray that you would trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ for eternal life. Pray that this new life would beget submission to Him and obedience to Him for all of eternity. Saint, today is the day of salvation. Friend, today is the day to turn and give your life to Jesus Christ. Live in Christ by growing in Christ. Live a life marked by the spirit of holiness and Christ-likeness. In these ways, we reveal the Father's glory for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would breathe life where there is death. That those who have been living a lie, a charade, masked by good deeds, rather than new life in Christ, that the wind of your spirit would blow over their soul and breathe life. That they would turn and trust in Christ and give themselves to Jesus Christ alone and live a life in submission to him. It is for your glory and our eternal good we pray in Christ's name. Amen.